Lord. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who were before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you have uh, preserved this prophecy, uh, the final word in, uh, in the Bible and the book of Revelation. And Lord, uh, we uh, need you to be our teacher, to send your Holy Spirit to um, open our eyes to behold wonders in your word. And, and that also, Lord, your spirit would take these words and apply them to us that we might respond uh, with faith, that we would believe more deeply in Jesus and that we would obey him. We would follow him and uh, trust him. And uh, so, Lord, we are hungry to learn from your wor word. Would you, would you feed our souls now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned today, we're in our second sermon on uh, the book of Revelation. And, and last week we had kind of a general overview. We talked about that Revelation is, is the final prophecy of the Bible that God had spoken through many prophets throughout the ages in history. But this was now he's finally spoken through his son, who is the final prophet. That's Jesus. And that, that uh, Revelation is really the great literary masterpiece of all history. And it's the final, uh, final book of the Bible. And it was largely written uh, to the church in the first generation of, of Christians. It's, it, it shares a lot of the main topics that the rest of the New Testament has and gives us ultimately a, a majestic vision of, of King Jesus. Well, today we're going to focus uh, in more on the audience of the book of Revelation. What do we know about the people who Revelation was written to? And that's such an important question if we're going to understand the book and then and also apply the book into to our setting now. And you see that this passage tells us very clearly who this book was written to in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. 
And then at the end of the passage, it tells us who those seven churches are in verse 11. Write what you see in, the, in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And these were, these were all ancient cities that are in uh, the western part of modern-day Turkey. And, uh, and the, the book would have been uh, sent to these churches. John was the pastor in Ephesus, so he was a local pastor among these churches, one of the churches. And uh, the book would be circulated among them, and it actually would have been circulated among um, many other churches. We know that, like, for example, the book of Romans was written to the church in Rome, but it was circulated to other churches. And the uh, Colossians was written to the church in Colossae, but it was circulated to other churches. That would have been true of all the books of the New Testament. So the first thing is we know that Revelation was written to these, these churches in the first century. But the second thing we learn about the audience is that they were facing a, a significant amount of persecution and tribulation. The hostility turned toward them from the surrounding culture was becoming more and more intense. And, and you see how John identifies himself there in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation. Uh, both John and the people he is writing to are partners in a period of, of tribulation in the first century. And that is a significant context for the understanding the book as a whole of Revelation. And so today is a bit like a second introduction and, uh, and kind of setting up the book for us. And so this morning we're going to answer just two questions from this passage. This is what they are. What was the tribulation of the early church. So what was the tribulation that John was experiencing these churches were experiencing? And, what do, and then second, what do Christians need in the midst of tribulation? So what was the tribulation in the early church? And maybe we'll see some parallels that apply to us. And then what do Christians then need in the midst of tribulation? I think there's real relevance to us as God's people uh, living in, in Bellingham in, in our, our contemporary setting. So Two questions for us this morning as we look at Revelation 1. The first is this. What was the tribulation of the early church? What was the tribulation of the early church? And as I answer that question, let me just first say that history is an immensely important part of the Bible. It's actually unique among, if you look at the Bible and compare it to the other holy books around the world, you know, say the, the Quran or the, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, one of the things, if you read those other books, they have a little bit of history kind of sprinkled into them. But if you take the history out of them, it really doesn't change the message of those books. Those books are largely about how do you, how do you live in obedience to God? How do you follow a spiritual path? And the Bible is totally different. You read the Bible... The whole thing is basically a history book. Read through the Old Testament. It gives you the history of centuries of uh, the, uh, the Israelite people in the Old Testament. And the New Testament gives you a history of Jesus' life and what happened in the early church. And it's a history book telling about the history of the world. What is the story of the world that we are living in? It's that God made a good world. Humanity has rebelled against God, and that's why humans are such... It was so bad, and there's so much misery, and there's so much sin and violence in the world. And so God gave his chosen people, the Israelites, to be a light to all the nations. And ultimately, Jesus came as the true king of the Israelites, who is reconciling all the people to God. And so they'd be reconciled and to heal the world. It's the story of history. And you cannot understand Christianity without history, and you definitely cannot understand Revelation without history. 
And so we need to spend a little time setting up the historical background for this passage. Now, one of the key storylines in the history of the Bible is the relationship between God's people and the empires of the world, the world superpowers of, of, uh, of the world. And if you read through the Old Testament, what you see is the empires of the world play a huge role. So there's God's people among the Egyptians, you know, during the time of Moses. Egypt was the superpower at that time. And then there were the Assyrians who took the northern kingdom in the 8th century into, into exile. So then there's the Assyrians. And then there's the Babylonians who took the southern kingdom in the 6th century into exile. And then the Persians come on the scene during the, in, the, in the books of, of uh, Daniel and uh, in the book of Ezekiel. And then you, ha- you learn in Daniel about the Greeks and the Medes. And then ultimately it's the Romans who are the superpower during the time of the, of the New Testament. You read the New Testament. The Romans are there. It was a Roman Pontius Pilate who put Jesus to death. It was the Romans who arrested the apostles in the, in the early church in the book of Acts. And, um, and starting in the 6th century BC when uh, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians and the temple was destroyed in the 6th century, the Jewish people in the Old Testament were scattered out of the promised lands into the whole Mediterranean world. And, and uh, what they did was over that 500-year period, they built an elaborate system of, of synagogues. They're basically like churches. They church planted all over the Mediterranean world. And uh, so by the time of the first century, when Jesus comes, there's both Jerusalem, the capital city, but all of these Jews in the Mediterranean are, have been living under pagan imperial rule for centuries. And, uh, and um, this, uh, this synagogue system um, is why in the early church, when you read about the Apostle Paul, and he was a missionary planting churches around the Mediterranean, and he comes to a port city like Corinth, and he spends a year and a half there, and he plants a church and appoints elders and then moves on. Now, if you talk to any missionary who goes to a place where people have never heard the gospel before, and you say, could you start a church and appoint elders in a year and a half and then just leave the church and it would be fine? And they'd be like, no way, a year and a half? Why, how could Paul do that? Well, it was because he would go to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, there were people who loved the Lord, who knew the scriptures, who prayed and were righteous people. And he was just, they were just waiting to hear about the Messiah. And, G- and Paul came and said, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. Let me connect a few dots from you in the Old Testament. And so then they left the synagogue and they planted these churches and they started these churches. And there were churches all over the world. And so during the time of the New Testament, the Jews had been living under this pagan imperial power for centuries, and the book of Daniel had prophesied that during the first century, a Messiah would come to deliver them from their pagan oppressors. And um, during this uh, whole time of history, around when Jesus came, there were many other uh, leaders, would-be messiahs, who claimed to be the Christ. And they would form armies, and they'd come to Jerusalem, and they'd get everyone uh, riled up and say, it is time for us to take on the Romans. It's time for us to fight. It's time for our liberation. And so when Jesus comes in the Passover week, either of 30 AD or 33 AD, we're not exactly sure which year it was, he shows up to Jerusalem with a whole entourage from Galilee. And it's the Passover week, and he's been healing people. And everyone's like, God is with this man. He is, he is speaking the truth, and he's challenging the religious leaders. Except Jesus comes, and he doesn't say that God's judgment is going to come on the Romans. He says God's judgment is going to come on Jerusalem. 
and that God's own people have been unfaithful and that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And at the end of that week, he was not the leader they wanted, and so he was crucified. And so God showed, oh, you're wrong. He's the leader I want. And so he raised him from the dead and vindicated him. And so from that time, there was this split. Because you had the Jews who said, it's time for us to take on the Romans, and then you had the Jews who said, no, Jesus is the true Messiah. And so for the next 40 years, after Jesus' death and resurrection, throughout the Mediterranean, at all those synagogues, there was this division where people had to decide, are we, are we taking on the Romans or are we following Jesus? And so the church expanded and attention was building for those 40 years. And so you come to the end of that first generation of Christians in, in the decade of the 60s, in the first century, and there were three major things that happened in that decade of the 60s. And these are all key to the book of Revelation. So the first thing is that the first systematic persecution of Christians by the Romans happened under the emperor Nero. In 64 AD, Nero accused the Christians for the great fire in, in Rome. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, Nero is famous for, for lighting Christians on fire and using them as, as torches at his dinner parties. And Nero's execution of Christians began a precedent in the Roman Empire that someone could be put to death for being a Christian. So first, you have the, the persecution of Nero. Second, the Jewish wars began in 66 AD. There, the Jews finally started a revolution, and there was a civil war in the Roman Empire between the Jews and the Romans. It lasted, lasted seven years, and in 70 AD, the Romans came into Jerusalem and destroyed and burned Jerusalem and, and destroyed the temple. And so you have, the, you have Nero's persecution, you have the Jewish wars, and then the third thing is, in the end of the 60s, there was a huge amount of turmoil among the leadership in Rome, and over the course of just about a year and a half, there were five different emperors in Rome. So you have Nero commits suicide, and then you have Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian all in succession become the emperors in Rome. Now I just want you to imagine all of this happening today. Imagine Jerusalem is invaded and destroyed and burned, and Christians are being systematically killed, and the United States had five presidents in a year and a half. One of them committed suicide. What would you think? You would think the world is in complete upheaval, and it would make sense that a book like Revelation would come into the midst of turmoil like that. That is the setting for Revelation. And so when we ask, what was the tribulation of the early church? The key thing is to understand, what was it like being a Christian in the middle of all this? You're being persecuted by the Romans. The Romans said that Christians needed to worship the emperor. And Christians said, we can't do that. We're going to follow his laws. We'll be good citizens. We'll even honor him, but we will not worship him. And that was, uh, you know, a political defiance against the Roman Empire. They said that Jesus alone is Lord. But also the Romans were at war with the Jews. And so you have these synagogue system all through the Mediterranean. And the Romans saw those as like terrorist cells throughout the Mediterranean. There is a civil war happening and they have all these little groups spread out everywhere who are fighting against the Romans. And then you have these Christian churches who are largely Jews who have left the synagogue and they've started this other thing. And we say, hey, are those terrorist cells as well? And so the Jewishness of the church was again bringing the heat of the Romans. And then you add into that that you grew up Jewish, you grew up in the synagogue. And now your family has rejected you because you follow Jesus. 
And there's persecution from the people that you've only known, the heritage that you've only known are now persecuting you. And so the world had two political forces at war with each other, the Romans and the Jews, and Christians didn't fit with either side. They were homeless exiles in the political world of the first century. And Revelation is a political book, and the tribulation was political. And you see in this passage that the Apostle John had been exiled as a prisoner. Look at verse 9, what it says. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in, in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. Patmos was uh, just off the shore in west of Turkey uh, where those churches were. And uh, it says, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And most commentators agree that what he's saying here is he was exiled to this island because he was preaching the gospel. He was arrested and imprisoned. The tribulation of revelation that Christians was that Christians were caught in the middle of a civil war and they didn't fit on either side. Now, before I move on from this first question, this first question, what was the tribulation of the early church? This is it. I want to ask, how does this apply to us? Um, Because being a Christian often feels like a political homelessness. And it should feel that way. It often feels like being misunderstood. We're constantly having to say things like, I agree with you here, but I can't go with you there. And uh, the early Christians said to Rome, we want to honor the emperor. We want to obey the laws, but we're not going to worship him. And they had to say to the Jews, we believe the Old Testament, that you're the people of God, but we'll never deny that Jesus is the Messiah, and we're not going to start a civil war with Rome. Both views resulted in tension with the culture around them. And C.S. Lewis, in his, um, his book, Miracles, he describes this tension this way. He says, Christianity, faced with popular, popular religion, is continually troublesome. To the large, well-meant statements of religion, it finds itself forced to reply again and again, well, not quite like that, or I should hardly put it that way. This troublesomeness does not, of course, prove it to be true, but if it were true, it would be bound to have this troublesomeness. What Lewis is saying is that if the gospel is really true, we should expect to constantly not feel like we fit into the world. We should feel homeless. Otherwise... The gospel is only offering something that the world already has. If we're not different than the world, then we're only offering the world something that it already has. Does this sound familiar to us? For example, if you're a a politically conservative Christian, you might believe in, in the Constitution and think that it represents the Christian view of original sin. Original sin saying that we should have a limited government. And if you're uh, concerned about the government having too much power, you'll find biblical warrant for that. The Bible warns us against giving kings too much power. They're going to abuse their power. But your love for the Constitution cannot mean that America is the destiny of human history. You can't call America the light to the world or a city on a hill or the old glory. These are all words that have been used by political presidents and vice presidents. All words explicitly used by Jesus for his kingdom, which is an international kingdom, and it's, it, it's mainly institutionalized in the church. 
You can't consider Donald Trump the standard bearer of Christian righteousness or Christian leadership. This is all the religion of Americanism. We don't fit. Or if you tend to be more liberal and you want to emphasize the social structures that support the poor and the single mom and children in poverty and immigrants. Of course, the Bible talks in many places about the widow and the orphan and the sojourner. And uh, you might care about racial equity and uh, equality and, um, and reconciliation. These are, again, major themes in the Bible. The church had uh, different ethnic groups coming into the church. The major challenge in the New Testament that Jesus was breaking down dividing walls between ethnic groups. But you cannot believe the Bible and condone the sexual ethics of many progressives. The Bible is clear sex should strictly be in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. We can't condone abortion. We have to believe that God made humans, male and female, and though we should feel deep compassion and tenderness and love for those who are experiencing gender dysphoria, we cannot support gender reassignment surgery, especially with minors. God's people don't fit anywhere in the world. And some of you hear me and say, oh, well, Nate, you just think we should all be moderates. No, that's just another political category that we, no, Christians should have strong convictions. We shouldn't just have half convictions and, and kind of live with the status quo. We need to have convictions and seek transformation in the world so we will feel tension. And this experience of not fitting in a world at war with itself, especially as that war intensifies, the Bible describes as tribulation. And Christian at many, Christians at many times throughout history have found themselves experiencing it. We may experience it to increasing degrees in our own lifetime. And I know that many of us feel this tension and we feel weary from it. We feel weary from a world of it in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in the church. A weariness of this tension. And so that leads to our second question. So we've looked at what is, the, what is the, uh, the tribulation of the early church. They were caught in the middle of a civil war. But what do Christians need in the midst of tribulation? What do Christians need in the midst of tribulation? How do Christians stay faithful to Christ in the midst of such tensions? I want to po- point out four things from this passage. Okay? First, above all, we need God himself. And you see how the first thing John writes to these struggling churches, he says in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from who? And this is one of the great formulas of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I love how John says it. First, him who is and who was and who is to come. We find out later that's the Lord God. The, word, the title God is usually used for the Father in the New Testament. So this is the Father. So uh, grace and peace from the Father. And then it goes on, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. And seven is, a, is the, the number for the fullness. And this is the fullness of the Spirit before the throne. That's the Holy Spirit. And then, and from Jesus Christ, who is God's Son. We can only live and walk through tribulations surrounded by the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And part of the way that God surrounds us, you might say, how does God surround us to walk with us? Well, that's the second thing we need. So we need God. Second, we need a family. You and I need a family. And look at verse 9, what John says. I, John, 
your brother. He doesn't say your pastor. He doesn't say your spiritual authority. He doesn't say your apostle. He is your brother. They are family to each other. That's what he needed as a family, and that's what they needed as a family. And when you are homeless, the thing you need most is a family, and that's what the church is. And I know we all come from different backgrounds, and we've got some differing opinions here and there, but uh, at the center of what we believe is in the, uh, that we come to the Lord's Supper, we all have one blood in us. It's the blood of Jesus that is in us. That is our family. And what families do is they share everything that's theirs. They share their house. They share their food. They share their whole lives. But this passage adds something that we share together. And you see how he says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. And that, that word partner, the root of it is the Greek word koine, which means to, to share, to have things in common. You know, when in the Acts, when it says uh, that the church had all things in common and they shared everything, that's what this is talking about. And this says that we share tribulation with each other. We share suffering. We are partners in it. Um, and that is our family. Henry, Henry Nouwen described it this way. He said, we are able to do many hard things, tolerate many conflicts, overcome many obstacles, and persevere under many pressures. But when we no longer experience ourselves as part of a caring, supporting, praying community, we quickly lose faith. This is because faith in God's compassionate presence can never be separated from experiencing God's presence in the community to which we belong. And, you know, by the way, in verse 10, uh, John says that he received the vision of Revelation. Uh, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And Christians throughout said, what's the Lord's Day? That's today. He was in this, he was, he may have been at church. He might have been in prison with other Christians. And they, on Sunday, on the day of resurrection, they gathered in the Spirit to worship God. Maybe it was just a few of them. And there, this little group of persecuted disciples, the king revealed himself to them. And John got this great vision that was given to us. It's, it's a beautiful thought. So we need the triune God to surround us. And the way he does that is he surrounds us with our church family. The third thing this passage says we need is we need patient endurance. We need patient endurance. Again, verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. And that word patient endurance is one word in Greek, and it's used seven times in the book of Revelation. And Revelation is very careful about things like that. When it uses the word seven times, it's saying this is an important word. And it may be one of the most important words for describing what the Christian life is like. It's stay the course a long obedience in the same direction, wait for the Lord, stay in the game. And, uh, and you know, that's exactly what this year has felt like for me. I, I remember thinking this a year ago. The goal is just to still be here in a year. <laughs> still have a church, still be a pastor. Just keep doing the stuff that God has called us to do. Worship him on the Lord's day. Make disciples, read his word and pray. Love the people that God has put around you. Work on your marriage. Raise your children to know the Lord. Open your home and be generous. Patient endurance. Keep doing the same things even as the tensions build 
and trust the Lord. Focus on what God has commanded us to do. So what do we need in tribulation? We need God, the triune God to surround us. He surrounds us with a family, with the people in the, in the church. And we need patient endurance. But you'll notice those important words that John adds in verse 9. He says, the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The patient endurance is only in Jesus. And that's our final, the fourth thing that we need in tribulation is we need a king who loves us. If we are gonna walk through the tensions of tribulation, you and I need a king who loves us. And here in these opening verses of Revelation, it's one of the great epic statements of who Jesus is. I, I, I could read verse five over and over again. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. It's just epic. That is our Lord. Firstborn from the dead. He's raised from the dead and he's the king of all the kings. And in the midst of all the turmoil, Jesus is the true king over all the politics of the nation. The deep politics is that he has been given all authority in heaven and earth. And the deep politics is that when we gather here and we worship... This is a political gathering, and we are gathering with people from every language and every ethnic group, every culture who are having gatherings like this and giving our allegiance that Jesus alone is Lord. Jesus alone is King. And it says that he was the faithful witness, and the word there for witness is the word martyr. He has, he has himself already walked through the tribulation. He died at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And, and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, he's been in the middle of the conflict between Rome and the Jews, and he trusted God and was faithful. And he's the firstborn from the dead. He's disarmed the powers of Rome. You know, Rome, whenever there was any kind of resistance and, and someone's going to stand against the Roman powers, what would they do to the leader? They would crucify him. And that's how they kept all rebellions, you know, pressed down. And so they tried to crucify Jesus, and he was raised from the dead, and he took away the power of crucifixion from the Romans. And so you have these epic statements, the faithful martyr, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. But immediately after, John comes down from the heights of Jesus' majesty, and he says these words in the second part of verse 5, to him who loves us. The great king loves us. And it's not past tense. It's not that he loved us. It's not that he loved us when he died on the cross. He is presently, continually loving us. Are you feeling the tension of not fitting in the world? You feel that in your family or you feel that in your workplace or in your neighborhood. Has it made you weary this year? Has it made you anxious or confused? Or do you fear that things are only going to get worse? Well, I tell you that if you are in Christ, the king loves you. He delights in you. He treasures you. He thinks about you. He listens to you and walks with you and encourages you. He feeds you and teaches you. Friends, the king loves you. And that's what we need to remain faithful through the tensions of being a Christian, the king who loves us. He himself has endured the tribu tribulation his people will face, and he himself has surrounded us with the triune God and brothers and sisters to walk with us as we patiently endure. And so our patient endurance is only in Jesus. 
He has guided his people through tribulation throughout history, and he will continue to do so today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we uh, thank you uh, for these words from the scriptures. And um, Lord, you know each one of us present here. You know the weariness that we have faced, um, the tensions of giving our supreme loyalty to Jesus, to um, long to conform our minds above all to your word alone as our supreme authority. And Lord, that makes it so that we, we don't fit. And we pray that our church, this would be a place where we would experience family, that we are brothers and sisters, that we share in the tension together and help us to encourage and love one another as we patiently endure and continue to do the work that you've set before us. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.